Hello and welcome to the Common Good Podcast. My name is Dan Dietrich. I'm your host today. As Russian tanks and troops invade our peaceful, democratic ally Ukraine, the conversation about how we as a nation respond to war and violence moves from the theoretical to the real and urgent. Last week, we recorded a conversation with David Kramer and Miles Wernst to talk about their new book, A Field Guide to Christian Nonviolence. This conversation is more relevant and urgent than ever. And if I'm honest, I really struggle with some of the implications. If you're like me and you see a bully, whether it's in the middle school gym class or if it's a petty tyrant like Putin, you want to stop them. You want to prevent them from inflicting pain on others. But maybe nonviolence isn't the same thing as sitting quietly on the sidelines. As we'll see, the long history of Christian nonviolence actively works against war and oppression, even when it's costly. So let's get into our conversation. This is David Kramer and Miles Wernst, a field guide to Christian nonviolence. Guys, I am so excited about this conversation because uh, I'm someone who's been trying to advocate for Christian nonviolence for a really long time. And uh, it's really hard to do. So thanks for writing a book about it and a field guide about, uh, guide about it. And you uh, are both professors. You're, you obviously care about these issues and you've, you've scanned and looked over the entirety of the Christian nonviolence enterprise for the last you know couple of centuries. First of all, would one of you tell us wh- what, when, you, when someone asks you, what is Christian nonviolence? How do you answer that question? Because most people just say to me like, oh, so you're a pacifist? And then we're into another conversation, which feels like we're talking about like, I don't know, only war and all the rest of it. When you talk about Christian nonviolence, how do you frame it? Yeah, I think uh, the first thing we would say is that it's a tradition. It's a living and breathing tradition. And as with any tradition, there's going to be internal disagreements, contradictions, some alignment. Um, But a lot of what we are trying to do in the book is to say this isn't one settled position and you can't just say i'm a i'm a pacifist or i'm a card carrying advocate of christian nonviolence and have that mean one particular thing so i can't really boil it down to a short answer because that sort of defeats the purposes of the book which is to say there's all kinds of different ways of coming at this question i mean i guess that it's basic would be a refusal to take life um but there's all kinds of different logics to how you get to that conclusion. Yeah, I would echo David. I think that that's a good summation of it. Um, part of what is so interesting, uh, what was so interesting about writing the book, is that there are so many different uh, different moving pieces with respect to uh, among the different figures as to what you know what counts as nonviolence. Where where does it begin? What is its aim? Uh, what it, like? What's the point of doing this? What sources do we draw from? There's just such a diversity there that it's hard to kind of pigeonhole it apart from. Uh, I think what David identified is to say that yeah, the refusal to take life, and I think the refusal to take life because of the because of the person and uh, the person of Jesus. I think that's what that's where it comes comes down to. Yeah, that seems that seems like it's sort of the the Christian side to it. it, it it's funny because. Well, I mean, that's where I root myself, right, is, look, Jesus' teaching is for another kind of way and another kind of life, and killing one another using violence and coercion and force, that just doesn't fit. And yet, 
that seems to be really out of step with the with the history of the Christian tradition, right? Uh, in some way, like you just look over the history of the church, and it has done that in times past, and there's so much of that now. You know, I think about pastors who are trained often by the demand of their insurance companies to put armed guards in their churches, armed people prepared to shoot and kill if someone uh, wants to cause harm in a, in a church building. Um, so it feels like those of us who talk about Christian nonviolence are just talking about like taking parts of Jesus's teaching more seriously than what sort of matches the, the, the Christian tradition. But your book allows people to see that, well, that's not actually the case. Some, some people have really been taking this seriously for a very long time, even though the majority uh, see it differently. Yeah, that's right. Um, we focus largely on the 20th and 21st century where we see really a proliferation of different kinds of violence in the world. And so as a result, within the Christian tradition, a proliferation of responses to that. So in the wake of world wars, in the wake of uh, nuclear armament, Vietnam, terrorism, and an increasing awareness of uh, sexualized violence in the home and church, we see people stepping up to respond to that in creative new ways. And so, you know, there's there are other books that will do a whole genealogy of war and peace throughout the whole tradition of the church and there's you know i'm a i'm a i'm a mennonite and we kind of have this declension narrative of like well the early church was following jesus and then with constantine <laughs> you had the synthesis of kind of church and state and that's when everything went wrong and then of course the heroes are the radical reformers that sort of break from that um and that's you know a simplistic telling of the story but i do think there is something to be said for that distance between church and state where a lot of what's going on in contemporary evangelicalism, especially in, in America is, you know, this Christian nationalism movement. And I feel like that isn't necessarily directly tied to violence, but there is a large component of violence associated with that. And to me, that is a, a danger. And I would, I would view that as a distortion of Jesus's teaching. Miles, yeah. how about you? Do, you? do you see that? Like, is um, the, I feel like your book is, is look, Christian nonviolence has been something people have been talking about the whole time, right? Uh, from the Gospels and all the way, all, all the way mm -hmm. before. Uh, in, in any in any expression of Christian tradition, people have been talking mm -hmm. about it. But watching armed insurrectionists with Christian flags and Trump flags attack the U.S. Capitol and beat police forces uh, with those very flags and calling for the invocation of a Christian narrative and Christian violence in the U.S. Senate seems to have sharpened the mind of some of us, at least for the last, you know, 12 months or so that that may all fade away. Uh, it does feel like this is as important of a question as ever. Yeah, no, I think that the question of the relationship between Christianity and violence has always been a very, uh, it's been a very interesting one and a very fraught one for a long time. So this is where I might want to, I'd want, want to disagree with like the, the Anabaptist telling of, of the story just a little bit. And that you still have Christians like between the, the fourth and the, and the 16th century who are talking about this, but it does get kind of minimized and, and, and retained only in kind of very specific kinds of ways. Uh, so you have all sorts of like uh, admonitions against, say, monastics picking up weapons or clerics uh, picking up weapons. That it's fine for like regular folk, but it's not fine for um, yeah. the folks who are administering the, the sacraments. 
Um, yeah, I think that this this is a part of what is so compelling about this topic, and has been compelling for for David and myself for a number of years now, is that this seems to be a foregone conclusion that the use of violence um, is something which is uh, not only permissible, but it's something that should be just taken as the as the norm for Christians. So for both of us, both of if you if you're talking about like an origin story of of this book, it goes all the way back I think to, to 2001, and that both of us in different ways began asking the question in the wake of uh, 9/11 about what that relationship between Christianity and violence should look like. And so in some ways, this is the culmination of a long period of, uh, of writing and thinking and reflecting and discipleship for both of us to kind of put this, put this out there for other people to be able to hopefully benefit from. Well, I was just gonna say, just as 9-11 was a clarifying moment for Miles and myself, you know, my hope is that January 6th can be a clarifying moment for others, maybe those who, were lulled into um, going along with a certain stream of uh, Christianity, but then when they see kind of that that's the culmination of it, saying, oh my goodness, that is so clearly incompatible with yeah. what you know I hold to be true that um, they're going to look, look in other directions. And so maybe this tradition of Christian nonviolence could be a direction they might want to explore. Yeah, yeah it, might not, it might not be that they come away... Um, taking a hard line on Christian pacifism, but they'll look at that and say, yep, that's not it. I don't know what it <laughs> <Right>. is. <laughs> but, uh, I don't have all the that. answers, but it's not that. Yeah, But it's not that. <laughs> right. One of the biggest pushbacks to Christian nonviolence is uh, the idea that at some point you have to use violence to protect vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, that a, is that an open discussion within this conversation? Uh, what are some mm-hmm. of the the ideas around that tension. I mean, I, I take it to be an open discussion. Uh, David, what do you? Yeah, I think um, how you define love of neighbor and love of enemy is going to really um, affect how you answer that question. And if the tradition of Christian nonviolence has nothing to say about how to love and protect the vulnerable, then I think you know that is going to be pr- pretty problematic. But one of the things we show in the book is that nonviolence isn't just a refusal to engage in any kind of uh, resistance, but actually there are forms of nonviolence that are very actively resisting violence in the world. And so in some ways, some of the forms of nonviolence are addressing conditions upstream from the situation you're describing to say, can we start to undo forms of violence that may manifest themselves in oppression of the vulnerable or, you know, there's always going to be tragedies. There's always going to be, you know, school shootings, unfortunately, or home invasions or whatever. And and I don't think there's a, a silver bullet to use a, a bad violent analogy there to, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to right. stop all that. Um, but I don't think the tradition of Christian nonviolence simply says we just sit back in the wake of that and and let it wash over us. I think there are a lot of creative ways to engage without um, the intention to certainly kill, but even harm the those who are also considered your enemies. One of the, I think the, the misunderstandings about Christian nonviolence is that all of it is equated with something that happens in the 16th century, which is the Schleitheim Confession, which emphasizes what's called non-resistance. 
So when Jesus says, don't resist the evildoer, mm-hmm. uh, they take that as kind of the mantra for what, like this is our relationship to violence. We kind of, we, we emphasize kind of a, with, a, a withdrawal of sorts or a two kingdoms motif about what the relationship between the church and the world should be. Um, but as David rightly points out, part of what the, you see within uh, kind of like contemporary versions of Christian nonviolence is, is a wanting to address proactively causes of violence, uh, conditions which lead to further forms of violence, things which, uh, like structures within the world, uh, injustices which are kind of slow forms of violence. That violence is not just kind of this thing that happens somewhere out there. It's not just kind of a matter of international conflict, but it is something which is intimate to our daily lives all the time. And so the tradition is trying to, is trying to recognize these things and to, and to deal creatively with them. I mean, the question of, this is where, I don't know, if I think David and my mom, maybe we agree on this. Maybe, maybe we disagree on it. Well, that's uh, fine. <laughs> Let's find out, I guess. <laughs> right. Uh, so I would maybe want to distinguish between, say, force and violence. Force being simply kind of getting, like, I mean, force is just kind of like when I'm closing the door, I'm, I'm exercising some sort of, like, agency on the door to, to move it into a closed state. Some of the, my five-year-old who's watching TV in the other room doesn't come in and bothers while we're doing this podcast, for example. Uh, so force is, there's, there's a way of thinking about force that also involves maybe thinking about restraint. It maybe thinks, it could think about uh, disarming that doesn't also necessarily have to bundle together like lethal force, right? That I can, I can think about like restraint without also having to think simultaneously about killing somebody. Yeah. Right. So that that then gets in that gets in, into some interesting places because the, I think that there would definitely be folks within that we discussed within the book who would take that approach. They would say that yeah, to be to to be nonviolent is to actively oppose those instances of violence in the world, but without being willing to take human life in the process. Yeah, and it seems like there's a, <clears throat> always this dance between the collective, especially government backed mm-hmm. violence versus individual and personal. So I've heard some people say, well, I'm personally committed to nonviolence, but I know that our government needs to use that as a tool and partly because our government shouldn't be bound by Christian understanding, right? It has other obligations and we live in a pluralistic society and it's not meant to be the hand and the force of God in a Christian way. So the government can have the use of force, but I shouldn't individually and personally. I know other people who just invert that and they say, well, the government should stop doing harm and stop killing people. I might have to do something to use some kind of act of violence, but that I should get to decide in a moment not to have our government do it. So can you talk a little bit about that? How people on that, whatever that spectrum is or whatever that that range of, of how people have thought about this over time, uh, how, what, what if people pick up the book, you know, Field Guide to Christian Nonviolence, are they going to get some help in sort of sorting any of that out? Well, they're definitely going to encounter figures who answer that question differently. And so, you know, what this is an introductory book that's designed to expose people to this whole tradition. And depending on kind of which rabbit trail you end up following yourself, you'll get different answers to that. So, In the first chapter, we talk about what we call nonviolence of Christian discipleship. And this might be the most familiar to to many of your listeners. You know, this kind of like, we're disciples of Jesus. Jesus tells us not to 
kill people so we don't kill people. Um, and I think on that view, it would be a little bit more like we're not so concerned what the state does. That's that's a different sphere. We're concerned what we do as individuals or perhaps what the church does. And in some ways, that's what distinguishes the church from the state. We have this separate witness. And so um, a lot of the more prominent voices in Christian nonviolence over the last 30, 40 years, if you think of someone like Stanley Hauerwas, that was kind of his mantra is like, the church needs to be the church so the world can be the world. Um, and, you know, he, he often says things loudly and then qualifies in footnotes. So I'm sure he would have things to say about how government should act as well. But um, in other chapters, we look at Christians who say, well, why shouldn't the state be less violent than it is? Do we just have to accept that as a given? Um, you know, our context isn't exactly the same as it was for first century Christians in Rome. We do have a voice. So are there things we can be actively doing to at least mitigate violence in the world? And so we have a chapter that we call um, Realist Nonviolence. And these are uh, people kind of picking up on the stream of Christian realism from Reinhold Niebuhr, who himself was not a pacifist, but he, he talks about things like, you know, ambiguity and compromise and how sin affects everything we do. And some people pick up on that and say, well, yes, sin is pervasive in society, but it doesn't always have to manifest itself in the kinds of violences we see. So can we identify the particular sins, you know, structural societal sins that manifest themselves in violence and try to address those conditions to minimize violence? So there would be different ways of coming at that question that we highlight in the book for sure. A lot of people have been introduced to nonviolence in public spheres through the approach in the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King Jr. And that at that time there was great debate in black society and black culture about the best way forward. And these debates that your book highlights through the Christ, through Christian history have also been around in the U.S. history, you know, 50 years, 60 years ago. So it's a very live conversation and is still today whether mm -hmm. nonviolent approach to our government is the best way or the use of force to protect people from a violent government that's trying to hurt and harm its own citizens, especially black and brown people. So this is a very live, these are still very live questions that, uh, that are, not, are not anywhere close to being settled. Can you say a little bit about how you talk about the the role of the the civil rights movement, and especially uh, King and his his side of that movement that was arguing for nonviolence as the best way to show that the the government is violence, so the alternative is to be not violent, and that's what's only going to bring about the change that we want in this you know expression of a beloved community. Yeah, King is such a complicated figure. So he shows up in this chapter that we we call Nonviolence of Political Practice. And he shows up there alongside say another figure uh, Cesar Chavez, both of whom are using nonviolence prudentially to be able to uh, leverage leverage opinion to kind of sway public opinion toward their cause to be able to um, in King's case, in particular, like to to shame their opponents, right? So when people when the when the dogs are turned on them or the fire hoses are turned on them, like at an audience that's watching this horrifically play out on TV is just horrified by what they're seeing, and so the will the willingness of the protesters to engage in nonviolence just stands in such stark contrast to the ways in which uh, the government is treating them. So 
what you get with that with that particular with that particular strain is it's it's much more tactically oriented. It's much more prudentially oriented. But for King in particular, like this is not just a tactic that he employs, but something that he sees is very much rooted in like the grain of the universe. Like this is what the world is meant to be. Um, he picks up a lot of that from a figure that we discussed in a very different chapter, um, Howard Thurman. And so Thurman himself was a mystic uh, who didn't who was not a, a big proponent of the marches, didn't really engage in a lot of high-profile political activity but really developed a sense of the ways in which nonviolence is just intrinsic to spirituality and a, like a spirituality that speaks to the way in which God has ordered the world. And so King really picks up on that and to say that what we're doing when we enact nonviolence in this way is we're not just trying to persuade the government to be less violent, but we're, we're giving a display to the world about like, this is what the world is really meant to be. Like you say, this is, this is beloved community, like being played out in front of your, in front of your eyes. Yeah. And it seems to me that violence is just a lowest form of action and a real admission to a lack of creativity. Like you think about any act of violence when it's brought about, whether that's an angry outburst or systemic violence or militarization all these things, it's because something else more beautiful, more creative, more good has failed. Mm -hmm. And even people who are proponents of violence only think you should use violence temporarily to get back to a place of greater communication, greater creativity. So it's right. a placeholder utilized temporarily, you know, somebody who is a screamer and a yeller and without bursts, right? Whether that's at work or in personal relationships, they don't run around doing that all the time. They use it in a moment and then often apologize for it or something and then say, well, now let's move on to create something sort of more beautiful. So I, it's funny that people who advocate for nonviolence really are forced to explain ourselves and people that don't advocate for nonviolence never have to explain why violence is a good thing. It's just nonsense for people to do it at any time and just seems like the lowest form. So, okay, that's a little mini sermon. Uh, how do you each think about that? And, and what do you, I mean, how, how have other people that you've read, that you've researched and have written about, how, how do they deal with, with that question that violence is just, it's just dumb. <laughs> well, I think there's a bit of a double standard where oftentimes people with privilege and power can assume that they have access to legitimate forms of violence. And then people who are in marginalized or vulnerable positions who respond with violence, that's somehow illegitimate violence. And so in the chapter on liberationist nonviolence, uh, we discuss somebody like Helder Kamara, an archbishop in, in South America. And, he himself was committed to nonviolence as a tool in the struggle for liberation. But he also said to his fellow um, uh, liberationists, uh, he's not going to judge them if they decide that violence is necessary for them. He's saying, I'm committed to nonviolence. I think it's the best way, but I also understand that oppressed communities have to make hard decisions. And the same thing is the case in the last chapter where we talk about Christian anti-violence, which is responding to sexualized violence and gender-based violence. And some of the figures we discussed there are not going to tell a victim of sexualized violence not to respond with violence. They're just going to say, we should be addressing that kind of violence proactively, again, to try to mitigate those conditions in the church. 
And so I, you know, I'm committed to nonviolence. I don't have weapons in my home. I do the way of Jesus and, and goes with the grain of the universe and all of that. But I also would want to be cautious about as a person of relative privilege, like telling victims or marginalized communities, there's absolutely no place for it. So that's kind of a couple chapters kind of give some room for that as well. Yeah, I think one of the one of the places that nonviolence can sometimes go off, uh, can become, it just needs to be aware of it at least, uh, is when it becomes kind of a perfectionist ethic. When it, hmm. uh, when it assumes that all persons are kind of cre- created in the same circumstances in the same spaces. Now, that's not the same as saying that violence is, is when it is enacted is a good thing. Um, but it does, I think sometimes nonviolence can wander, can, can forget that people are existing in different sorts of contexts. Um, and again, this is part of what, what, what the book tries to do is try to acknowledge those different contexts and the ways in which uh, nonviolence has been applied and enacted in situations that are in public policy conversations, um, among oppressed communities, among folks that are, uh, that are operating in very different kinds of contexts. Yeah, is there like a fundamentalist form of nonviolence where people are so hardline that it almost becomes weaponized? Yeah, that's an, that's interesting. hadn't really hadn't really thought about that. I think that that's a good question, David. What do you? I mean, I have my suspicions, but uh, well, there are, there are definitely there are definitely um, communities in which nonviolence or pacifism or non-resistance mm-hmm. is a lowest common denominator for participation in that community. So, mm-hmm. you know, Amish communities, conservative Mennonite communities, even like Seventh Day Adventists, these things would just be assumed. And so, to enlist in the military or to join the police force is going to be basically tantamount to leaving that community. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to yeah. so suggest. That I yeah. don't know that. I don't know that the label fundamentalist necessarily applies, but it's certainly like a a criterion for for membership in that community in the way mm-hmm. that a doctor, you know, a list of doctrines and and practices would be for other communities. Yeah, and and you know, and a gen- there's a way that that fundamentalism can be generous, but m- most isms and is don't come across to people as a positive. You know, uh, like we tend to use that in derogatory. I think about Janus people who follow a religious practice of Jainism, which is total Mm non-impact and engagement, even being careful about not stepping on plants or killing uh, 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 insects when you're walking, like really trying to be ever conscious of any kind of impact in the world. And and yeah, I mean, I think there's a way that, you know, and I, uh, David, I think this is a really good question, you know, or a comment about, uh, about, you know, marginalized peoples, um, as somebody who thinks and has experienced violence, uh, like, uh, it's just a bad solution. I mean, it might be the thing you do at a moment to sort of get out of a very bad situation, but it perpetuates and the Janus and other people who are very nonviolent outside the Christian tradition, you know, there's a lot of nonviolence traditions outside of Christianity. I don't know if you write about much mm-hmm. of that in the, in the book. Um, but there's a, just a whole other way to orient. And I think the hard thing about being a, living in a society that is fundamentally built around the the 
glorification of violence as necessary. In fact, we organize for it, uh, we prepare for it, and we utilize it very regularly and tactically in our society in, in the United States and much of the Western world. It's very hard to be nonviolent in any way that doesn't make you look like you're just out of touch or or being some kind of a you know a, a person that's just not not a realist to, to borrow the phrase that you used earlier. Yeah, and I think we need to recognize that even if we have a personal commitment to nonviolence, we are a part of a, a wider society that is so enmeshed in all kinds of violences. And this is something that the Mennonite community has been reckoning with themselves, where, you know, they're the the story that Mennonites tell ourselves is that we are this consistently nonviolent community going all the way back to the Radical Reformation. But then there's examples where different communities may have gotten kind of a pass where it was like, as long as you don't enlist in, or as long as you don't say anything about our wars, we won't make you enlist in the military, <laughs> you know? And so is that kind of arrangement really uh, actively combating the violence of the world or is it just kind of getting an exception for us in our community? And so there's a lot of wrestling in the Mennonite community there, but I think for those of us who are committed to nonviolence, we need to do that for ourselves to say, okay, I may not support this war. You know, some people might go so far as to not even pay their war taxes or something like that. There's been, you know, war tax resistance movements. But what other ways is my life kind of being like propped up by mm -hmm. the military industrial complex? And, and so I think being circumspect about that is a good, uh, good way to not get too prideful about your own kind of position on this. Right. This is, this is honestly where I find like the realist position that we, that you, we develop in the book to be helpful. It's just an acknowledgement of kind of the embeddedness of all of us within systems and within a world that is, uh, that, that is violent in multiple ways all the time, right? There is no removing ourselves from, uh, the conditions of violence. And so to be non to to talk about nonviolence is not to presume that we exist in kind of some space apart from violence that's happening, mm -hmm. but to be to bear witness to something from within, like the folds of violence that's happening all the time. Um, it doesn't. I mean, it, again, it doesn't give us a pass to to say that we're, we're attending to it in one place, but I think it invites us to attend to it in all sorts of ways. Um, so one of the places that, that I love, one of the things I love most about the book is where we end in the conclusion, in the conclusion hmm. um, is that we try to draw a lot of this together to ask the question, what does all this have to do with, um, what does all this have to do with like a world in which we're, we're, we're experiencing droughts and you know, like ecological collapse and um, environmental catastrophe? Like what does nonviolence have to say to that world? Mm -hmm. um, such that we're we're not uh, just to remind us that like the nonviolence is not something that we can is not a is not a way in which we extricate ourselves from violence, but it's a way of actively engaging like all the forms of violence that are present to us all the time. Like, did you guys write this book because you want to advocate for more people to take on a nonviolence approach? I know you're you're both professors, so you have many. Any reason for you know how you utilize education and influence in the world, but was was that part of it? Is that part of why the labor of love that goes into, by the way, not only writing a book but co-authoring a book has a particular level of strain to it? So I'm glad I'm going to ask you about yeah. that in a bit. <laughs> were you writing? Yeah. I mean, 
I mean, is some of this when you spent those late nights or went away with manuscripts and were working on all this and you're telling yourself what you're doing, were you saying like, look, we want the world to be less violent or we want people mm -hmm. to stop killing each other or harming one another with conscious intention? Like, it, mm -hmm. is that what, what's going on here with the, with the creation of the field guide to Christian nonviolence or, or were there other was that not yeah i think that's i think that's definitely part of it yeah i would love it if more people took this seriously and more people adopted uh christian nonviolence as as a as a coherent approach that i think is uh, completely consistent with the person of jesus i wish that I, I want more people to do that and so i think that's definitely part of why writing the book but i think part of it was just there is a there was uh, the more we got into these conversations, there was just a real lack of understanding as to what Christian nonviolence was actually about. The most people had in their in their in their minds an image of something called, as we referenced earlier, something called non-resistance, kind of a, a dis, like a discrete removal or a separation from anything in the world. And so we're going to be nonviolent, but we're only going to be non able to be nonviolent because we're actually not engaging in any of like social spaces where violence exists. So that was kind of the I think that's like mo what most people think nonviolence is about. And so writing this book is a way of being able to say, no, that's actually not it. It's, it's much richer and much more engaged than that. <laughs> so yeah. but you can't get, you can't get people to take it seriously when they think that it's something that it's not. So you have to do the work mm -hmm. of kind of explaining here's that, here's, here's the actual positions. Here's the actual internal arguments. Here are the actual figures that you've, never heard of but you need to and you need to go reckon with what they're talking about yeah i think it would be a misreading to think that this is primarily an apologetic for nonviolence. there's a lot of great books out there that'll say like the biblical case for nonviolence, or you know right 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 what, what to do about hitler and that type of thing um and we're not doing that genre so much as kind of just a lay of the land of what it is to to create better understanding across traditions so I think of it as more invitational than kind of argumentative. But if people accept that invitation to, to follow the way of nonviolence, then that would be a win. <laughs> Do you each fashion yourself as an adherence to, to nonviolence from your Christian tradition? David, I think, has the, has the easier road. I mean, Mennonites are on record. This is just kind of what Mennonites are. Uh, yeah, as a Baptist, I, I was thinking about this, that we, the two of the anchors, uh, two of the anchor figures in our chapters that we write about are actually Baptists. You have uh, Howard Thurman and Martin Luther King Jr. So I didn't do that on purpose. But, it, you know, I'm not going to argue with it. Do, do uh, yeah, so Baptists have definitely have a, have a much more fraught relationship with nonviolence. It's definitely, it's, it's a, definitely a minority report within, uh, within Baptist life. You find those figures, but they're not, they're few and far between. Yeah, I think I would say I'm, I'm in progress. So, like, um, I've used the analogy before that there are certain people out there, I won't name names, but who will say, I'm the least racist person you've ever met and that's that's well, usually that's not the yeah, former well, that's, 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 that's the name i wasn't going to mention and that's usually that's usually indicative of the opposite and so to claim that i'm the least violent person you've ever met is probably a sign that you have a lot of work to do so I think I would say nonviolence is something I'm committed to and it's something I'm working toward, but it's a, it's a work in progress. 
And I think the chapter on nonviolence as Christian virtue is a good example of that, where it's the end toward which we're striving, or it's one of the ends, but we're, we're pilgrims on the way toward that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I, I spend a lot of time talking to Stanley Hauerwas about this in public settings and interviews like this. And, you know, he, if people don't know who he is, he's a particular theologian and ethicist uh, at Duke, Duke uh, University. And he, he says things in that, as you mentioned, you know, David, in that very Stanley Hauerwas salty, you know, character way that he does. That the reason he's a pacifist is because he's such a mean son of a bitch, right? That's his that's his <laughs> phrase. He says, I'm not a pacifist that's right. That's right. because I'm a good guy. I'm a pacifist mm-hmm. because I'm not a good guy, and I need an ethic that keeps me from doing the thing that I would otherwise go off and do. Mm-hmm. Like right. that and, and sometimes when people are, you know, say like, hey, I'm committed to nonviolence or I'm a, there's not a good word other than pacifist about this. So I, like I do a lot of anti-death penalty work because I think our government should stop killing people top to bottom. Um, and that's criminal justice reform comes into that. And I think our militarization is a real problem and lo- lots of things. Um, but then people are like, well, what about do you eat? And, you know, like they, they just start down the what about isms mm-hmm. of, of a whole series of things. Which is, I mean, Harawas helped me a little bit sort of with this idea that, look, it's, it's, it's a commitment to just saying there's some things you think are just outside the bounds of what human beings ought to do. Whether or not, you know, I may violate that at, 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 a, at, at a moment or, or a time or I'm careless or non-conscious about it. I don't know. It seems like like one shouldn't have to defend themselves quite so powerfully around all this. And that's been a confusing thing for me, mm-hmm. especially in the Christian circles. Like having, having pastors argue with you why they should have armed patrols in their churches so that they can get the shooter you know, sooner. It just, it seems totally outside the bounds of what would be otherwise reasonable. But I, I feel like I'm the, I'm the wacky person uh, saying that stuff in, in most of the conversations that I've been in with people around this conversation. I was just going to say, we're here to help you Kennedy weird. So <laughs> <laughs> just lean into it. That's, yeah. that's all you have to do. That's right. Now, I'm glad that David brought up the, the point about virtue uh, insofar as I think that it's, it really emphasizes the ways in which nonviolence is, is, is part of the school of virtue. Uh, one of the figures that I resonate with and who troubles me the most within the book is Dorothy Day. Uh, and she talks endlessly about the little way of love. And if you go read her, you know, you go read her journals and she is, she is grumpy and she complains about people and she's, you know, she is fully aware of like the depth of sin in her own life. But we look at her and think that this is this amazing virtuous person, but it's part like part of why she adheres to nonviolence is it's a way of virtue. It's a way of like training ourselves to be the kinds of people that we have been called to be by God. It's not that there is no violence in my life, but rather that I am aware of I am inc- grow. I grow increasingly aware of the violence that that, that I'm a part of, and the violence that mm-hmm. I contribute to, yeah. and uh, let that be part of the the call of God to um, to have to deal with that. Yeah, it does seem like Christian nonviolence is the minority opinion. Like Doug said, he's the weird one in these conversations, mm-hmm. but it hasn't always been that way. Can you talk about times where that was the predominant Christian ethic, and is there hope to get back to that. Yeah, we um, we begin our story pretty much in the start of the 20th century. And um, there was a moment even in the US where it seemed as though 
pacifism was kind of winning the day. And so the early social mm -hmm. gospel movement right. was really tied in with this global movement to end war. But what happened was that mantra quickly became the war to end all wars. <laughs> and so many of many of those social gospelers ended up getting involved in World War One or supporting it. But one holdout to that is probably the most well-known social gospel figure who's Russian, Walter Rauschenbusch. And so he ended up dying of cancer just before World War One ended. But he became increasingly pacifist in in the run-up to World War One because he saw the devastation that that was going to, to leave on society, um, both internationally and domestically, just when you have this society that's so focused on the war effort, you know, it overlooks so many of the other social issues that he was so focused on. So that was one moment where I feel like, ah, things could have gone a different direction even here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But then, mm -hmm. you know, after World War One, and then Reinhold Niebuhr kind of comes in and says, mm -hmm. see, that's that shows you that that whole pacifist nonsense doesn't work. Um, mm -hmm. But Miles, maybe there's another period you you want to focus on. Oh, yeah. I mean, ground zero for that question usually is like, well, what about the like the earliest Christians? The, how did how did the earliest Christians think about um, issues of violence? And that question is a historiographical mess. Um, <laughs> it, it's hard to say. I mean, the, without a question, we have so many uh, disparate voices and disparate sources from the earliest days of Christianity who all point in this direction. Uh, that, yeah, uh, when Jesus says that you're to love your enemy and to, and to pray for those who persecute you, yeah, we take that seriously, that this should be kind of an, 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 a no-brainer for, for Christians. But that doesn't mean that it was a universal, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was like a universal stance or that there weren't uh, dissenting opinions or that say they were running into questions like, okay, so uh, the soldier that I know just converted, what do I tell him to do, right? And so some mm -hmm. soldiers uh, renounce it, but others don't. Um, so it, it always kind of, I think even within the earliest Christian, the earliest uh, earliest days, like it is a, it's definitely it seems to me to, that it's a more more majority voice, but it's not a like unanimous, right? There's always kind of dissenting voices in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. After about the fourth century, then it kind of the tide shifts the opposite direction, so that uh, those advocating against like participation mm -hmm. in the military or and that kind of thing would be more in the minority. But you know, it was never kind of just all one thing at all. All the time. Yeah, I imagine everyone in all the places are dealing with you know the sheer realities, and I guess where a lot of us could get to is, hey, it we just know in human development that it helps when you move something in your in your consciousness from it being good or not. Like goodness matters to human beings, and so a lot of us do things that we think like, wow, I, that is something I would not ever normally do. Think of someone who has a chemotherapy treatment for a cancer. They don't normally ingest major amounts of chemicals that cause their body to go through the things that chemotherapy puts their body through. But at some point they say, well, it's, it's a cost benefit that's going to help me. It's going to be really hard on my body. So I can do this, this unique thing at this one moment for this greater outcome. That's a different negotiation, then I'm just polluting my body with chemicals, right? Because that's not what you're doing. Right. 
so th- th- like there's a there's a difficult walk that someone has has to have and it seems to me that it's really helpful for people to say hey we're in a systemic uh, uh we're, we're in a system that uses violence systemically and best way to get out of it is to start to say that's a really bad thing we're doing let's recognize it's a bad thing what feels like it's happened in this country repeatedly is every time we use violence on a grand scale whether that's on our own citizens through the many ways that we've done so from or people in this land taking our lands or enslaving people or criminal justice or or wars that we do in other places we don't say which you know i don't think goes far enough is that like well this is a necessary evil we don't even call it an evil we just say no it was ultimately good like you guys have probably been in these conversations too. You try to convince somebody that dropping two nuclear weapons on the country of Japan was an evil, mm-hmm. and they will argue with you endlessly about why that wasn't an evil. We can't even call right. killing a hundred thousand people in the second time to just test an experiment as an as an act of evil. So it does seem like just a basic level of moving forward and saying, can we all just admit that that's, this is not good and we never ever want to do it again? So the war, right. no wars. David, from your argument, like it just feels like we're nowhere near that, whether it's in the church or the rest of our society, we glorify this nonsense as if it was the only possible way. And we call heroes the people who have to go and do it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, sermon yeah. number two. Any thoughts? <laughs> well, that cues us up for uh, maybe one of the most provocative chapters of the book. And I can say that because Miles drafted, did the first draft on it, but it's what we call apocalyptic nonviolence. And basically these figures, you know, apocalypse, we think of zombies or end times or whatever, but really it's about revealing. It's about revealing something about reality. And so proponents of what we call apocalyptic nonviolence have these dramatic acts to dramatize just how violent our society is. So when the Berrigan brothers, you know, break into um, steal draft cards and pour homemade napalm on them and, and burn them, that may have a small impact. You know, the people that those draft cards uh, names were on might not get drafted now, but the bigger dramatization is just uh, showing just how violent we are as a society. And so I think apocalyptic nonviolence is an interesting example of what what you're talking about, Doug, of like just taking stock of the fact that we are so far from that ideal, you know, and, and Jesus, God through Jesus reveals how to respond to that evil or that capital D death through the way of nonviolence. And so I may not be perfectly, you know, nonviolent myself, but I do think that that is the the structure of the universe as revealed in the person of Jesus. So there's my little mini sermon for this morning. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> Miles, you said here, yeah, I, in the chat, you have to go. So any, any final words from you? And then uh, David, I want to ask you about what it goes into co-authoring. So Miles, if you have any thought on that. <laughs> yeah, co-authoring. And and the, and David and I bring... David and I bring a very different set of strengths and different uh, kinds of experiences to this project, so it was a lot of fun. Sorry, my are those, are those sweet little voices coming from your from your back? <laughs> this is because co-authoring is not just what you do between the two writers and an editor. Co-authoring is what you do with all the people in your family all the time. You're, I mean, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, I think David and I bring a, a, a lot of different uh, experiences and and uh, history 
and strengths to the project, and so I wouldn't have been able to do this by myself, for sure. When David wrote the initial article in Sojourners that kind of mapped out, I think, what would then become the more full version of the book, I was like, yeah, I think this is fantastic, and I want to I partner with you, because you've already kind of set the vision for what this could be. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. Once he jumps off, I'll give you the dirt on the rest of it. So for anybody else that's got to go at this point, the book is called The Field Guide to Christian Nonviolence. And, uh, you know, it helps you see that this is yeah. a real, real thing. That's there, there it is. Uh, <laughs> a real thing that's, uh, that's been happening. Miles, thanks. Thanks for your time today. Yeah. David. You can stick All right. So much. Thank you all for having us. Yeah, right we'll see you later. Take care. Uh, so, so, Miles, uh, talk a little bit about the, the the book, where people can get it, how it came together, how people made it, all the rest of that stuff. It's a it's a Baker Books publication, is it? Yeah, Baker Academic. Um, it was released last week, so you should be able to get it wherever books are sold. I hope. Um, but I'll say, uh, when, I Google, when, when I Google it, just to find you know more stuff, uh, like the third link that came up was to buy it at Target.com. So oh, wow. uh, well, well, okay. well, well done to the salespeople of Baker Academic to yeah. get it landed it. Yeah, uh, they yeah they were great to work with. Um, they have a great editorial team and marketing team. So props to them. Um, but as Miles said, this book kind of came um, as a result of uh, an article I had written in Sojourners Magazine back in I think it was early 2016. And what what had happened that kind of precipitated that article was there was there were revelations about John Howard Yoder, who was you know the major proponent of Christian nonviolence that for a lot of us was sort of our our entrance into this uh, tradition. And there were revelations about his own life where there was sexualized violence in his own life that was coming to light. And so I think the Sojourners folks who Yoder had been on their masthead back in the day and for people like me who had read our way into this tradition through him, there was a lot of soul searching around that time of like, okay, is this whole thing a sham or where do we go from here? And so that article was just kind of a way of saying, Yoder isn't the only voice in this discussion. And in fact, there's a lot of other people who would directly challenge some of the moves he makes in the politics of Jesus. Uh, there's others who would have a very similar approach as the politics of Jesus. And so it's not to say, you know, you can completely disown him and his influence on the tradition because he was widely influential, but it is to say you don't have to go through him in order to, to get to this conclusion. And so that article came out in, I think, 2016. Miles read it around the time he was on a panel where he was sort of the token pacifist and felt like the view was getting caricatured. And so we had met at Baylor and he just reached out and said, we should blow this up into a book. And at the time, you know, straight out of my PhD program, kind of being naive about what goes into writing a book, I was like, sure, let's do this. And <laughs> we got a contract. Love, and book time. That would be the ultimate yeah. goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we did a proposal, got a contract, and then it was like, oh, we have to write this thing. So um, <laughs> Miles is a kind of guy, like he was talking about our, our different strengths. He's a kind of guy who can just plow through the reading and get a draft out there and and move on to the next one. So he started sending me chapters early on, and I was like, dang, how is he doing this? Because I'm like <laughs> a very slow processor. And I have some background in editing, so I want my first draft to read like a final draft. So I'm just snail's pace, and he's just running laps around me. But um, 
you know, with his patience and and my kind of determination to not let my co-author down, <laughs> I got my chapters in too. And then uh, I was able on the tail end then to do some editing to make our voices kind of sound the same. So I hope that as people read the book, like you wouldn't know this is a chapter Miles drafted or this is a chapter David drafted, but that we have kind of a unified voice. So it was an interesting process of co-authoring. I would do it again, but there were some moments where I was like, I can't let Miles down. I got to keep keep at it, and it was a little tough. Well, hey, congratulations! I think it's I think it's important. Anytime, um, you know, I know a lot a lot of people like a historic are comfortable in a historic space. So they'll say like, there's a lot of books on nonviolence. You could pick one up anytime. Other people like something that feels a little more timely, a little more sort of now for whatever reason. And uh, I think it's good to have both on this topic because for, for sure, it's not like some new idea born, you know, in February of 2022, of course right. not. It's also good to have a perspective that's like from February of 2022, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's, Right. It's not, this isn't just an old idea. This is an idea that uh, it would be good if people uh, took a little bit more seriously, even, even in our day. Yeah. And I hope people find that this, this is both very relevant and pressing, but also drawing from the wellspring of a deep tradition. And so I hope people that pick up the book um, feel its immediacy, but also feel like they're being introduced to figures that maybe they've heard the name before, but didn't even realize like, oh, they're part of this tradition. Like Henry Nowen's one example we talk about in the mysticism chapter, where I think a lot of evangelicals or others, you know, encountered his writing on kind of spiritual growth and that type of thing, but didn't realize that he's drawing a lot of that from his own uh, commitments to nonviolence. So, Hopefully there's some familiar figures that you kind of meet meet again for the first time. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's great too, because I think people have an aversion to the caricature, like you hinted at, of nonviolence or the straw man argument for nonviolence. And this really invites people into, now this is what it actually is. This is how it actually functions in the world and is mm -hmm. actually a better way. Mm -hmm. Excited to dig into it more. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just so far down the the hole. It's like when people raise the straw man arguments, which they should and they do, because they don't even know that they're doing straw man. They're just literally asking, like, so you, if somebody broke in your house, you wouldn't like do anything about it. And I don't know. Most of the time, when people say that kind of stuff, I'm just like, I don't know. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Like, wouldn't it be better if you just didn't do anything about it? You just left, like. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like you just got out and you just went, went away and they took all your stuff. All right. Like, I, I don't know. It's just, there, there's such a root assumption. And I think it actually comes out of biology. I think that human beings are called to overcome our biological impulses to punch another person in the face. If, if somebody has that. And I don't know, it just seems like, like it's, it's, Maybe maybe it's that red pill, blue pill kind of phenomenon. Once you step over the line, you're just like, okay, it's not that big a deal to just assume <laughs> that if you act in an aggressive way to harm another person, that you're doing something that's morally wrong. Um, I don't know why we've ended up in a world that's just increasingly more violent in the United States and less condemnation of it at a sort of any level. I, I don't, it's just bizarre to me. Um, right. Well, the phenomenon I've encountered in all kinds of different discussions is that the one who's holding the minority position on any topic is usually the one who's 
more well-versed in it. <laughs> um, so you almost have to become a, a localized scholar just to be able to, you know, uh, have a have a seat at the table in the discussion. And so it is interesting how the same four or five questions come at you every single time you have this conversation. And it's as though you'd never thought of that question before. <laughs> and maybe for the person asking you, yeah. it's the first time they've really reflected on it deeply, but yeah. usually it's something that if you hold the minority view, you're very well versed in what the question is and the various mm -hmm. ways to answer it. Yeah. Well, thanks uh, David for all your work. Thanks for the book and hope people buy it. Yeah, thanks for having us on. And when you come through South Bend, look me up. Okay, we're going to follow up with you about that conversation. We're not just going to look you up. We're going to try to work with you. All right. So, <laughs> All right, uh, we'll sounds good. All right, good talking to you. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Thanks for sticking with us through that conversation. It's a complex and uh, evolving conversation. Even in the chat today, um, thank you so much for contributing in the comment section. Some really great comments and debates. I've been over on Twitter as well, where the conversation among Christians uh, is lively and diverse. <laughs> and uh, people are definitely wrestling with this this question, what is our response to violence and war in the world? It seems like it's almost easier to say, yes, we should send troops, we should drop bombs to prevent a bully like Putin from continuing this invasion. But that's maybe because most of us won't have to sacrifice anything, right? Like the average person isn't going to have to go over there and put themselves in harm's way or send a child or loved one to do that. So we don't have much skin in the game, but are we willing to increase sanctions even if it means higher gas prices for us? Are we willing to strengthen our partnerships in Europe and support them uh, when they take a hit for closing down their oil pipelines? Are we willing to let it, let it hit our pocketbooks? That's a question I wrestle with. And honestly, I'm... I'm with you, a, a lot of you in the comments. I'm not sure where our responsibility ends. Like, should we put ourselves in harm's way to prevent this violence? Should we use force to stop the bully that is Putin? I don't know. I'm, I'm with you in wrestling with that. But it's a conversation we need to be having, and uh, it's it feels more urgent than ever. So thank you so much to David and to Miles for writing this book. Uh, it's a lot to think about and wrestle with. And uh, we'll be back next week. We'll have some more great conversations. But as we're wrestling with this and as we're figuring out how to respond as Christians and as people of good faith and good conscience, uh, we can definitely be pushing for less violent responses. We're talking about an armed conflict with a nuclear power. And there are things that we can demand that we take off the table that we demand that we don't even bring up the idea of using nuclear weapons. And hopefully that's a starting place where people across the board can agree, like bombing a whole city of civilians to prevent a war is too high a cost, morally and literally. So hopefully we can find some common ground and things, lines that we should not cross for any reason. Rachel says, if he isn't stopped, he won't stop with Ukraine. I think that's true. I think uh, I think we need to stop him or he will only be more emboldened. 
It's just a matter of what tools are we willing to use and what tools are we not willing to use to do that. So thanks again to everyone in the comments. Let's try to put some more common good energy into this world as it's hurting and breaking. Sending love to all you. Have a good one.